This is the Head Torch Podcast. Welcome. Our mission, to create a mentally healthy culture at work. Keeping the conversations alive, our podcasts bring you great presenters and stimulating discussion on mental health and well-being in the workplace. Enjoy. Today, I am really pleased to have the fantastic Peter Kelly with us, who is Senior Psychologist at the Health and Safety Executive. Peter is a technical expert on the prevention of work-related stress and promotion of mental health and a specialist inspector of enforcement action on these topics. He was part of the team of psychologists involved in developing the scientific knowledge base of the HSE's management standards approach to tackling work-related stress in the UK. And in addition to his role, Peter is the external relations chair of the European Academy of Occupational Health Psychology, and he's a scientific expert panel member to the ISO 45003 Psychological Health and Safety in Workplaces, which I'm sure you'll elaborate more on for us today, Peter. Yeah, Head Torch, I've known you for quite a few years now, and we've had the pleasure of hearing you speak at a number of our conferences, so we know folks that you are in for a treat. Peter, would you like to introduce yourself with some mystery object? <laughs> what have you got for us today? Yeah, so Peter Kelly, a senior psychologist with health and safety executives. I've been involved in mental health and stress for 24 years. Prior to that, I was a clinician and often wondered why people were 50% of people I saw were suffering from depression and anxiety due to work-related issues. I thought, well, let's look to prevent rather than cure. And my mystery object is, is my stress cap, which you can see, uh, we may not be able to see, there he is. This is um, <laughs> these are, these are things that are supposed to help you to manage your stress. Now, what I would say generally is that these things are completely useless. <laughs> Brilliant. They actually do, uh, lead you to repetitive strain injury. If you do that too much, all like that. But I also like the fact, the fact that this fat cat in the corner. And so during moments of boredom, or I might give it a just squeeze and I just like to squeeze it like that. But I think that any, give someone a stress ball, you're just giving them an RSI sometimes. <laughs> And does your cat have a name? My cat does. It's called. <laughs> Fantastic. So you said 24 years you've been in this game. So why? What, what started you on this journey to combat work-related stress? Well, so got a Churchill dog. <laughs> and so just in case you're wondering. I was doing cl clinical work. I was seeing people in, in a went on a Wednesday and Friday afternoon, Friday mornings, actually, you know, you'd see four, four patients in a neuro unit and it became acutely aware that about 50% of those people were born depression and anxiety and that, that they associate that depression and anxiety with stuff that was going on in, in their work and home. And I was like, well, we spent all this time curing. And it is work, all the elements of it are work. Why are we not trying to change work? And it seemed pretty a reasonable thing to do. For all, 
how I was deceived as to, as to how long it would take to get it done is an entirely different story. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you moved from, was it, how long did it take for that transition from, from clinical well, I, practice I was, to I was in a dual, so I was in HFC and the, uh, and working in neuro around organic solvent exposure and neurological deficits, but also if you remember the, the days of sheep dipping, which is organophosphate, I was involved to look at the neurological elements of that. So I had this, cl post, this clinical role where, where I did that to keep up my clinical practice whilst I was doing that for HSD. And then in 1999, there's a, a, a shift in, in, in policies of the new government that comes in and they were very keen from that point on this, that we should tackle where it lays stress because it was a, a, a quote unquote dire. So it's at nine and a half million in the, uh, in 99. And what we've seen through, from the nineties was the progression of crystals and psychic healing as the new way of managing work-related stress or coping with a capital C and it just wasn't working. So from the early nineties, we started some research and they started research looking at, could you realistically manage work-related stress in the context of, you know, the UK and as a regulator. So when the government denied said we want you to do that, therein lies four and a half years of exceedingly good fun from a scientist. From a scientist. So we, we kind of set out with this journey to, to look at work, to look at work related stress. And I think I may have told you that the initial conversation we were in Cardiff, we, we did sit around a, a, a bar in Cardiff and had some had some wine and some dinner and then some more wine and on the back of that, we, you know, we developed the, the process, but at the time we had a group, an amazing team of people working around us, Colin, who had, was a seasoned researcher in, in stress, uh, Rosanna, who was a, an academic who was working with us on the management standards and did the, the solid evidence base that we've got, you know, in terms of the data analysis and Dave. So, you know, I was fortunate because there was four of us working, four psychologists working with over another 20 plus policy people. Those were the days when you literally could have any idea <laughs> and then you went out and chat and you went out to change it and to, to, to make an impact. Yeah. Right. And just to, just to clarify for those who perhaps aren't aware the six management standards are our roles, relationships, demand, support, change, and control, right? They are, and they developed on, they developed on the evidence base at the time. So demands, control, support comes from the Kerasex model. If you're slightly geeky and want to have a look at it. Well, let's stop that again for us. From Kerasex. So it's Kerasex 1979. I had the, I sat with Robert Kerasex recently for about 40 minutes here in a lovely location for there actually. And we talked about the demands control support model and how it's still hugely relevant now. 
I tell you what, when you look at demand control, support, role, relationship, and change, and then you contextualize that in the pandemic, what did we see? High demand, low control because the pandemic took it all away from us. A lack of support because we were all at home, we weren't actually engaging. Relationships began to break down. Always clear. One day you were definitely never going to work from that. No, that you were. And then you and I and everyone else has just been through the biggest change process that's been unprepared for in the in probably in the last hundred years. And we know poorly managed change also leads to mental ill health. Absolutely. The first standard we produced for demands was 34 pages long. And it's an exceptional piece of scholarry. <laughs> and we're very, very proud of it. Very, very proud of it. So obviously scientists now. And we presented it to business and we had throughout the whole process, we, 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 we had connections with the businesses and, and, and all about how many businesses were you connecting in with them? We were, we were, as you developed it, the CBI and the TUC. So we got engagement at, at multiple levels and, and most of the professionals and authorities that were around at the time. And we took this this superb document to them. And then they turned around and went, you're barking mad. We <laughs> think you can do 31 pages. And herein lies why the management's down at the one page. So we had to go back and think, well, okay, what are we trying to achieve? So, well, the overriding thing should be that you want to change the level of demands that people have got. Okay. So that should be, and the individual re in, that the individual concerns are also addressed at the same time. So organizationally address the organizational stresses. If you have some individuals try to address those as well, but under it, we have these things called states to be achieved. There were the, the evidence would show these things were in place. There's a reduction in demands and a reduction in, in, in lack of control and an increase in, in support. So we, and that was it. So we took 34 pages and put it onto one page. And that's one. And I, they literally did put us in a darkened room in a hotel, literally the windows in Liverpool for four days, I think it was. And that's where we thrashed out what the management stance would look like and what the states to be achieved with, you know, with the other, with, with the academics that we were working with and a range of academics we worked with over the years to say, you know, is the evidence right? How are we going to develop it? How are we going to practically do it? Yeah. So it was a bit of a history tour. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it couldn't have been achieved without an incredible team around us, uh, around all of us that we work together. We're all passionate to, to about tackling workplaces and we had the resources available. When we launched the management standards, we were given 10,000 CDs. Oops. Yes. <laughs> 10,000 CDs. And we gave them out at every tube station across London on the day of the launch. Wow. Yeah. So the, our old civil servant of, at the time, I say Alden, she's retired now, Elizabeth, she said, I, Peter, we're not going to go for a scout hunt. We're going for the Royal Albert Hall in terms of what we, how we're going to launch this. And it always sticks in my head and you know, we went to the Royal, the, the Albert Hall, you know, get it out there and, you know, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And it has been out there and it's had, well, 
what, from your perspective, what impact do you think it has had? I think when we initially, the, the, the mentor service process will work. Well, what we did, uh, initially is to, to do loads of workshop, loads of trainings of people where, and we took some regulatory activity. Where you took regulatory activity, you got fundamental change fairly quickly. But particularly within the nature of trust that we issued a notice against that released the university about two weeks up to that, most NHS trust have had some contact with say, what do we need to do to manage the source of stress? We then took the, the decision to go what we, we what we call the carrot, not the stick. And it wasn't a single carrot, it was a massive bunch of carrots and an exceedingly small stick. And the, and the reason for that was we wanted organizations to fundamentally do it themselves because behavioral change has to come with it from within. Yeah. Uh, as a regulator, I could issue a notice to you and that will force you to change, but it won't necessarily change you forever. What we wanted to do to get organizations to value and changes. So the initial couple of years were interesting. By the time we got to 2014, we were at 1.5 million days. So it was going up. By 2006, with two years of effort, we were down to 9.5. And then from that period onwards, you know, it's been a voluntary process, voluntary, voluntary. I was argued though, that we need to have moments of intervention where we do regulatory work. And so yeah, the, I think you have to have a combination of both. People became in, became enmeshed in this idea that we'll do health and well-being. Well, what does that look like? Well, health and well-being is vast, but not what you see at the moment. You, in the early days, you give someone a massage, you, you, you give them a head massage, you give them nice fruits, you know, and actually we were like, oh, you know, fruits are good for you. you know, some fruits are good for you, by the way, not all fruits. And then we went, oh, geez, stop working. You know, it's like head massage and so what else do we, they must be because they're not resilient enough. So then we gave people, people resilience training because we said they have to be resilient. And so when they were resilient, but they were still going out, they went, oh, they're not being mindful of their situation. So we did mindfulness. So we got mindfulness, resilience, head maps, and, and loads of other things. Okay. And this is starting around 2010. Okay. The start of this movie is 2010. But what I saw was an absolutely back to world, the 1990s, it was coping. We called it something else. We just said, we want you to change with it. You to, and we're going to, and, and, and in that we're going to expect you to make the difference. Okay. Now, as you know, from conversations that we've had together, I'm a strong believer that system, e.g. the processes and mechanisms of work where we work influent how we come out of work feeling healthier or not. We don't know it. My word. So we got high demands. Why don't we reduce the demand? Well, no, you can't do that because if we do that, we'll lose productivity. And then we're like, oh yeah. But currently your sickness absence is running at this because of too many demands, you'll be that. So by reducing the speed or the, the, of the task by putting measures and systems in place to help people manage, you reduce the probability of injury 
And no, 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 because we're going to lose, we're going to lose money. I remember, I remember with a factory, which was making biscuits and you have to put the biscuits in a plastic container. And I just said, and there were three biscuits into, into three holes, boom, boom, boom. And there were eight people working on that, that part of the process. Uh, they're, they're the routine for job shifting meant that you moved one down. So if you were number one, you never got off that job. And if you were number eight, you were, you were, you were on the next job because you need to have changes to it. But, but the, the biscuits were coming through at a massive speed and they said, how much, how many, how many, how many times an hour are people doing this? And they went, I tell you what speed the machines come here, but if not, okay, can I record it for 15 minutes? And I recorded it for 15 minutes. And then I took seven hour, 10, seven hour, 10 minutes. In. And, I, and I said, and I worked, I got my numbers. And I said to them, how many times are people doing this? And they went 3,000, 4,000. The actual number was 70,118. Well, and number one and went down, obviously. Based on where you move to look. So the first four were three times as many as what they'd expected. Uh, and then here's a brief good example. Design the system, but don't design it around the person. And that, in the essence of where play is stretched, we create systems, but we don't create them with the person as, as part of that process. We, we buy an off the shelf system that will go faster and, but we don't consider or what's the outcome. The, the worker might not be able to work at the same speed as the system. And then, but then we go, it's okay because they're not really resilient, are they? So we'll make them resilient. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than looking at the, at the, I mean, I think we always think, you know, there, there are jobs that are, are repetitive, you know, that is, that's the nature of work, but what we like about the, the six management standards, you know, that we set out in that wheel format is that, you know, when you see that actually the job means that you don't actually have much control over what you do or when you do it, it's then about balancing out the other areas, isn't it? To ensure that somebody is, that yeah, the likelihood of stress is, re is reduced further. Yeah. But that balance of control is a dual relationship, isn't it? Yeah. The balance of control is that the employer has to put in a system that works around the employee, unless they completely automate the process, um, which you, which if you look at automation, there are, there are rel relatively few processes that come out with a complete automation. Actually, the people are part of that. So I think repetition is there, but you, but, you know, a good musculoskeletal management as you move on and on and on. So if they're together and there's doing one task for an hour, you move them on collectively to the next task. That's the group. And yeah. so what you're getting is a shifting of, of people, people's physical responses. Absolutely. It's about looking at the, 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 it's about looking at the root of the issue rather than trying to put a plaster on top, isn't it? I, I, I remember this, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't have, we didn't have these. Mm. For those that are listening to a podcast and not on video, this is a, is a phone. It is a smartphone. Okay. Let me just take you through the history. Personal computers were 32 years ago. Personal computers in work were about 29, 28 years ago. They were two, two, five K's. Remember two fifty K the, the distance. The first mobile phone was 20, which 
It was 29 years ago. The first mobile phone capable of, of, of receiving emails was 24 years ago. And we got that was what we called BlackBerry. The first iPhone was actually 20 years ago. Now, I, I, I want to contextualize it. So in the last 20 years, we have seen a steady on year, you know, increase in work related to stress. But what we've also seen is the way we work has fundamentally changed. Up till about the 1970s, early 80s, our work was physical based. Then we use technology and the work's become partially less physical for some, but not all, because obviously there's still physical jobs. But what we did is we replaced it with these beautiful things. We just went, guess what? We'll give you, we'll give you a computer. Well, you couldn't take the computers home, could you? Get a computer in your office. When you started taking these things home, like blackberries, wow, crackberries as they were called, we got into the, into a sea change in how we do work. This particular smartphone can hold 10,000 files. And I use it as an illustration when I do a presentation. 10,000 files, this is these files, the full scout file. And that file, therefore, in a standard office space, would take up an office that seats about 20 people. So that's the, what we've got, the capacity to hold technology and knowledge sits in these. What we then went, oh, you've got the freedom to use it. We're all like brilliant and use your phone. But what we didn't do is actually tell people to use it in a right, in the way that in this, you know, that was proportionate to the, to the organization. So we went from like, you can work eight hours to work in 12, to work in 15, to a certain sub case longer than that. The brilliant thing about these things that I have an only phone here is there is a, a device here where you put your, where you put your fit finger down, you're 15 seconds from switching it off. So yes. yeah, I, I think that and, really to the, it came especially to the fore, didn't it? During the pandemic, when it you was know, massive before, and then during the pandemic, we said, okay, we're into work, we're from home, but you can't possibly work. And tell them, oh, okay, you are working from home. Is it free? Is it computer? Um, and now we want you to work. And then, okay, the first the initial wave of the pandemic with lower demands, because we were like, oh gosh, what are we going to do? And then midway through the first, we were like, oh, demands are going up. <laughs> demands are going up. Control is completely out the window because it's a pandemic. And yeah. we don't support it because I have a single work colleagues for five, six months. So we had all the right ingredients for something to come about. And here's the thing, Amy, we know what happens after pandemics because we've got data from 1918. Well, I was just about to say, this session is actually called work-related stress, the storm ahead. So what is the storm ahead, Peter, Well, from your perspective? What a, what a, what a great link here. Yeah. Uh, so the point is, in 1918, when the Spanish flu pandemic hit, two things occurred afterwards that were virtually straight afterwards. One is the Great Depression. So recession often is associated with global, with global pandemics of a biological entity. The other thing, which if you look through the annals of, of medical journals, which I do because I'm a geek, and you look back at some of the, at some of the references, was a massive movement of mental ill health. People just didn't cope after, the, after that period of time. And during the Spanish flu pandemic, 
you know, what we saw is, you know, people isolating, you know, and, and dying in masses, lots of grief, lots of anxiety, lots of depression. Now, if you look at the, look at what we've just come through, and I use the illustration from the George Clooney film, it's the great, the, the massive wave you see with the boat going up and the boat reflects the... What's the film called again? The, the storm. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Here we go. <laughs> George Clooney and, and a load of others. And, and in the very last scene, I'm sorry to tell you, but as the boat goes up the top of the wave, you see the boat represents for me the recession of people inside it. Sorry, the boat is the pandemic and the people inside it represent the recession. Relatively small in comparison to the, to the, to the wave. The wave is what we are showing already is about 25% increase in depression and anxiety globally. Okay. And, and actually that comes with wealth health organization. And that for me is the storm ahead. Two tectonic plates collide to create tidal wave, a recession and a global pandemic. Bingo. And that's what you, guess what you get? Right, a raise in, in depression and anxiety after a pandemic. You get a raise in anxiety during and after a recession. But here, as in a once in a hundred year event, they've come together. So the big question is, of course, what does the workplace do about that? How does it support its people? I mean, the workplace has to do from, from the regulate, regulatory perspective, you're required to do a risk assessment. If you do a staff survey and you find people unhappy, then that's foreseeability. And you all do a staff, you all do a staff survey, don't you, to find out, or, or, you know, how well people are or how, how happy people are. Well, if they're not happy, then you've got a problem. And I use that. I do ask, well, let's see your staff surveys. Because the staff surveys indicate you've got a problem, I would say, well, why then haven't you done a risk assessment to establish how big the problem is? And that's rank five as a management rank. And then once, if you had. That's where what's the thing? It's rank five for the management ranks. Right. Health and safety. And if you've done a risk assessment, but then you've not done anything about it, then the rank five requires you to do something about the, the risk that you've identified. Okay. Now, Three and five is part of the management regs for, for health and safety. Underlying all of it, what embeds that is section two of the health and safety at work, which says you need to protect your workers from exposure to those things that are called harm. They're called, called harm. And it didn't, to their health and safety, it didn't say exclusively physical safety, it said health and safety. So you, you, you need to be doing what you should be doing for a range of perspective. On top of that, you should be doing it because it's, this is actually the right thing to do. So, you know, having conversations with people is really important. Talking to them about their mental health and encouraging people to be able to engage. Responding to your staff service, your sickness, absence data, your staff leaving. You've got plenty of sources. Uh, but you need to look at it. So you need to see strengths from a systemic perspective, rather than defaulting back to think of it as an individual perspective, you need to go, actually, we need to do something here. 
too many. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So it's it's the right thing to do. It's also the legally right thing to do. So there's no there's no yeah there's no arguments there really right. Do you want to? Do not, you want in to my, not in my book. Not in my book. No, not my book. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that standard for health, the the, the global one that's coming in the ISO forty five thousand and three. This is a standard that was developed over three years, launched last year, and it's occupational health and safety management, psychological health and safety at work, guidelines for managing psychosocial risk. Very small title. Yes, this trips off the top. A bit like your, what was it, 29 pages on demand? Yes, look at 34 pages. Very good. As long as you get people around 30. You know, effectively what it is, it, it, 72 countries worked on a drought, the, the version of this to agree what we would regard as relevant for managing psychosocial risk. It's not an voluntary standard, so it's not a standard that's currently in law. Although the, there are some South American countries that are seeking to love the idea of that. But it, it allows you to look at these things, right? Once you look at the context of the organization, what's happening in the organization to understand psychosocial risk. It looks at the role of leadership and worker participation. Or is it hard work and participation is there, which is also embedded in health and safety legislation. Then we have this thing called the planning and support and operations, and that is commonly called can do act. Okay. So in that we're asking you to plan what actions you take, what resources you need to do, and then at the operational level, what you then is how do you eliminate the risk? What are the risks? How do they look? And then you evaluate and you prove. And so there's 10 elements to, to the process. And if you follow this, this takes you through what we believe are important psychological, psychological factors to have in, in the workplace. So if we look at leadership and commitment, which is 5.1. Demonstrate leadership and commitment to managing psychosocial risk, promoting well-being at work, determine the resources that are needed to make them available in timely and efficient manners, communicate how whistleblowers. There's a whole range of, and it tells people what to do. They keep screwing to the steps. So sometimes how work is organized, so roles and expectations, sometimes we get role conflict and role ambiguity. So this, and this just basically goes through it. And so, but it crosses over neatly with your six management standards, right? You'll put six management standards in. Surprise, so, surprise. <laughs> I wonder why, indeed. Thank you so much, Peter. I know you have a question for us, which is where does the future of workplace interventions lie? Do you yeah. want to elaborate just very briefly on that question for us? Yeah. Do we sit and produce well-being apps? and make people say they're mindful is well, what, what else should we be doing? And hopefully if you've listened to anything I've said in the last half an hour, well-being and health and well-being is way more than simply the provision of an app or we're showing as a mindfulness training. It's, it's something fundamentally different. So I would, so that my question is what, what does that look like? And I'm not going to give you the until I've seen your answers. Hey, Peter. He's just, he's still so, bald. <laughs> Tara, yeah, you'd just handsome. like to say, 
if you just like to say where you work and then um, throw in your comment or your question. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Tara Ferguson. I work for Accentia. Uh, Peter, last time I saw you, you were on the phone walking in the opposite direction at the Health and Wellbeing <laughs> Conference in March. Um, I was just thinking as I was listening to you there, and actually it kind of ties in with the question of what does the future look like? I was thinking about my daughter um, and thinking about the impact that the last couple of years has had on her. She's 11 um, and she's suffered with anxiety over the last couple of years. And I wonder whether to really think radically and think big about this, we actually need to be putting more focus in terms of where you have things at schools that are about career um, career guidance, whatever it's called when she gets to that point, um, whether there also needs to be an element of education and support for young people as they at the point at which they enter the workforce um so One, thinking about it yeah 100 percent. and the reason i know this is we've got apprentices now joining the workforce who come with pre-existing mental health conditions because of the loneliness and isolation during the pandemic and last lack of access to services um the world of work is fundamentally shifted and changed there's a seismic shift um and actually there are massive fracture lines uh, if you look across uh, across the world, where and one of the things is we we no longer uh, it's not no longer a nice to you really have to now focus down on how you support your people mentally uh, as well as physically, um, and you can't go I'm not going to do anything about it because you've got four, 16 year olds coming in you have a duty you have you know of care to them uh, to make sure that you address the mental health issues that are there. Um, so yeah, I, I would cha- I'd educate them right from, from 13 onwards, well even 12 to be honest. Some of these are doing jobs, they're doing work, you know, part-time jobs, and, it, and they're already getting exposure to the world of work. Um, I used to get sacked from all my jobs, so the chemist round and the paper round because I was too slow. But but you know, high demands, low control is what I said. Um, so no, definitely. Um, and, and, and if there is a calling card, this was it. And if we were, if there was ever a moment when health and well-being could really make a difference, it's now. And I will fight uh, tooth and nail for you and others to always look at how does the organisation adapt and change what it does to help the people it's got. Stop concentrating on making them resilient. Stop concentrating on making them mindful. Do that, but also do the organisational bit. So don't mind mindfulness. Don't mind resilience. In isolation, on its own, it's not helpful. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> you don't need to don't need to apologise. Absolutely, Peter. I was actually also thinking, Tara, there of the amazing charity called Place to Be. I don't know if you've come across that. They provide counselling within primary schools as well as secondary schools. So actually, it's teaching people at a very young age how to have converse, constructive conversations, how to look out for and support each other. So I think actually, the earlier we can start, the better. Really. We need yep. to normalise mental health. We need to normalise it. No, exactly. we don't, we're not going to um, contextualise it, put a clinical label on it. We need to normalise the fact that mental health is normal, um, and, and that starts from that starts from from the time you go to school to the time you retire. Uh, it's a life course of experience, and I think um, yeah, if we don't do that, if we don't, if we constantly put it into the the corner and it's in the too hard. We fail this nation and we fail we globally, we fail at this. And that's why there's a global movement to raise mental health, to raise people's perspective and improve on people's uh, mental health so that actually they go home 
okay. Healthy would be nice. Going home okay would be is really the, the lowest benchmark. Yeah, definitely. Anybody got any other comments? Thoughts on, on, on Peter's question, where does the future of workplace interventions lie? No, these Scots are never quiet. What's this about? Come on. <laughs> Not all Scots. Ah, well. Yeah. The shyness of this. You can ask me any question, honestly, I don't mind. Jim, yeah. You just like except to tell for, us where you work, except, Jim. Except for Jim. <laughs> uh, I meet uh, Jim uh -huh. Boyd. Um, I run my own continuous improvement organisation, Unravel uh -huh. Limited. So uh, thanks very much for your uh, talk there, Peter. Um, so I do a lot of continuous improvement work, um, mainly in uh, operations, but also in other areas as well. So when, when Peter was describing the biscuit scenario, it was kind of music to my ears because, you know, I've been in so many scenarios where I'm working with frontline workers, typically the lower paid, but not always. And um, the stress they're under and trying to get stuff out the door is just unbelievable. And for me, I'd like to think that um, what I do is I don't just look at the process or the technical piece of it. And I think hopefully this leads towards uh, answering your question. It's about getting that balance between understanding the technicality of what a process does, but balancing it against the behaviours that you see in the people that are working the process, watching what they're doing, listening to what they're saying, or what they're not saying, and uh, right. that balance between somebody like myself, who's more technical in, in nature, and the kind of work that Amy and Angus are doing with HeadTorch, and really helping to educate uh, businesses that it's so important to understand the psychological element. Mm. You know, if anyone is familiar with Deming will remember that he's system of profound knowledge, as well as having technical elements, systems variation, and uh, you know how you how you know what you know. The other one is uh, psychology of work. Yeah. And that's nothing new. So and, uh, and what happened? What happens is they don't design a process and system. They think, what are the performance influencing factors? So people's psychological happiness and wellness is an influencing factor in accidents. I've trained all of our inspectors to look at accidents and to look at them and think, what was, what was happening at the time of the accident? Because it adds an extra level of knowledge to your investigation. You know, were they under pressure? Was it a lot of pressure? Well, that might have been the reason why we, instead of we have a violation, we may actually have a slip or, a, you know, um, a, or an accident that it, that's occurred because the system meant that the only way to get the job done was that you'd have to do something that, that would lead to that system not, uh, not working. And, and as you know, I mean, um, people and systems are beautiful things, <laughs> System is king, look at this, 10,000 files. You know, the problem is the system no longer is king because the, the, the actual, the systems are found to be at fault in terms of the interaction during the, during the lockdown, wasn't it? We didn't have home working. We didn't have remote working systems. We didn't, and actually everything was done very, very quickly. And it was found out that certain systems 
massively required you to physically be there. But that's because the system was designed to assume there would always be somebody there. Yes. Sorry, that's me. Off, that's me off on my human factors. <laughs> I've got, I've got a quick question for you, Peter. Hi. So, how do you convince the organisation where they just do not get this? You go in and you look at the sickness absence and you see the staff surveys, and you ask them in the staff survey, is are hundred percent of people happy? Surveys, <laughs> right? Is it hundred percent aren't happy? If 30% are not happy about something, then you say, well, what's that? Honestly, you do a well-being survey. It's music to my ears from a regulation perspective. Because when I go in, I ask, you got a well-being survey? Yes. Was everyone happy? No. What did you do about the ones that weren't happy? Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Actually, you want to do a well-being. I'm not saying don't do a well-being survey, but that that is a really good indicator that you might need to do a risk assessment. It's, it's hazard identification, isn't it? You're identifying you've got potential hazard. What did you do about it? Well, actually, we did a risk assessment. Good. What did you What did you put in place to manage those risks that you've identified? Um, and also, just tell them actually get with get on the, this boat. Okay, it's not moving and it's not going anywhere for, for probably the next ten years. If I had my way, it won't be going anywhere for the next twenty years. We will constantly put be pushing this, and I think that's really important. And remember this: HSC's put this as a priority for the next 10 years to reduce uh, the burden on business for work-related stress and, and mental health, yeah? Um, and is the future best served by interventions? I think we need to do interventions. I'm not quite the, what sure the rest of that question was, but listen, we know what stress looks like. We know what mental health, poor mental health looks like. Um, we're, not 100%, we're not sure because we're not researched and we will be researched. What does an intervention look like? So I think you have to, you know, when you do something unique in your organisation on well-being and on stress, that's an intervention. Record it. Make, you know, have a look at what's improved, what's not. And, you know, head torch are, are great at this, you know, going into an organisation and supporting people. So and doing that and you get that knowledge base. Um, so, yeah, I'd say. Okay. It's size, yeah, great. Say, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm off on one now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and actually, we're just about to hear more of our recorded. So much for be, for coming in live to join us, Peter. That's really Hi. fantastic. Can I just um, can I just say to you people here, one person makes a difference, right? Um, and, and, you know, the, the civil rights movement started with one person and it changes a, it changes a, a, a culture in the country. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be actually challenging. And yeah. constantly we all, we all have a, we all have a responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, and Peter. See you, and see you on my two o'clock at LinkedIn. Need to coffee. move along. Need to move Bye. Peter, you have some top tips for us. So let's just work our way through those. Our, your first one is train your managers. Yeah, and, and thank you for the, the the comments from from your your participants as well in in sort of. Looking at, yeah, well, it's not rocket science, is it? I mean, the training of your managers to be better managers of people. And remember that currently we train people on what we call a transactional model. Do as I do. And actually what we know from a management perspective is transformational leadership and transformational management is way more effective. 
Yeah. And that is where you get people to do because they want to work for you and want to see what you're doing. So train them in how to manage and work with people's food and understand their emotions. Absolutely. And create the right environment to talk is your second tip. Yeah. So if you're in a job where you say we don't really talk about mental health, then it's not going to be very useful, is it? You know, I reference the fact I'm, I'm always surprised why people become autonomous robots when they come into work. And yet the, half an hour before they were sat around the breakfast table talking to one of their kids or their wife or husband, and they were asking how things were. And they were saying, well, I've got a really rough day ahead and they're showing empathy and compassion. They get in a car or a bike and they get to work. Where do I? Can't do that. It's a work colleague. So for me, you can do it. You need to do it. You've got to create an environment where people are happy to talk. You know, in, in much of industries, you know, big men don't cry. You know, the truth is men do cry and that's what makes them, you know, men. Think of mental health, M-E-N, men. So, so the point <laughs> is, you know, being in, being able to tell our colleagues how we feel is really, really important. Yeah. And the more we, more we have just the day-to-day -day conversations, the more we're likely to open up if we are struggling. Yeah. Well, we're not talking about giving a hug every, every, every five minutes, is it? You know what I mean? No, no that's not entirely necessary. <laughs> I mean, I'm a prolific hacker, as you know, so I don't know. but yeah, it's, it's, it's just been real. I mean, put your human nature back into work. I think I just, I talked with Louise Hoskins, who is the president of Royal Ocean. We're talking about putting the heart into health and safety. Lovely. All right, I acknowledge the existence of work-related stress. It's point number three. Yeah. Don't go, oh, no, it's something else. All right, actually, if you've got a staff survey and people aren't happy, then there's a possibility of aware of stress. Find out, acknowledge it, say, what can we do? How can we make it better? Hello? There goes your risk assessment, which you're required to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, that. Always bring your employees along with you. Consult, consult, consult. Yeah. So what happens a lot of it, and it globally is, I've got this great idea. We're going to do this because it's going to improve your mental. But they're not all doing this stuff. <laughs> but it's his idea or her idea. But there's no staff consultation. And what happens there? It doesn't happen. It doesn't work because people haven't bought into it. And this we knew right back in 1997 when the European Union produced a report called The Spice of Life, which said the worst thing you can do is to tell people you're going to do something and do nothing. Because that's what pretty much happens when you overpromise. And keep consult, keep talking to your staff. You know, don't be scared of your staff. <laughs> In over the twenty-four years I've worked doing this, most of the things that have been recommended by staff, we need to put them together in a consultation perspective and have a conversation and take them through, is way less cost than the the initiatives that you think you're going to put in. You know. Talk to people. Maybe it's hiring someone to come in and do something if you don't live the values afterwards. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's that thing of everybody's got ideas and just because, you know, you have to be running the organization doesn't mean to say you need to have all the ideas because there's lots more 
out there. And the more that those are brought on board, the more people are going to go with you, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the consultation with power of human context and connection. Yeah. Typical psychologist, I, I hear you say. But actually, <laughs> what the pandemic really showed up was that capability to manage when we were in isolation alone is horrendous for some people. Some people liked it. <laughs> so they, they were like pretty cool, you know. But I, I mean, I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like it because I was in this office and doing hundreds of webinars, supporting people and desperately get outside in the car and, and talk to the bird, which I did and still do. Yeah, no, lucky birds, lucky, lucky squirrels. Yes. But again, it's about consult, 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 because what's great for one person is not necessarily great for another and vice versa. So I think we you take know that when we ask the question. I think if you got the idea that it's a great idea, but you haven't consulted your people, it's not a great idea. That's nice one. You know what I mean? A great yeah. idea is a shared idea. A great idea is something that comes together. That's what takes people a lot of proofs with. And, and, and talk just, you know, well, I, you expect me to say this, <laughs> it is very true. Your final tip for us today is make it simple. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we're developing voice like that, two or three from 90 pages down to 34, I constantly said, who is the end audience of this? How is the language that we use going to influence what they do? And that has been my mantra, I think, over the last couple of years, which is we need to share, we need to talk about mental health, we need to do it in a relevant and real way. If we go for diagnosis and we don't actually explain what does that mean, you know, it can, it, it's just becomes really difficult. Make it common to talk about mental health at work and to define what mental illness is, mental illness, depression, anxiety, mental health. Is not, it's not that, you know, people's mental health can be the state of where they are, where they flourish, where they, where they become engaged, or they could be in a state where they're, they're, they're less, they're less engaged. They're not depressed. So they're not suffering towards mental, having a mental health, a mental ill health issue. It's a great area to be in. Like there's just so many times. <laughs> yeah. Keep it simple. Keep the messages simple. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. We're going to finish off with a few quick fire questions for you. Are you, you ready? Tell me about these. Yeah, I know. Surprise. Right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go. What does vulnerability mean to you? Vulnerability means to me that you're prepared to take a chance on something that you don't know the outcome of. Wonderful. What's going to revolutionize workplace mental health? Well, wow. <laughs> what's going to, what's going to, is a sea change and, and the narrative changing on mental health. And for the next 10 years, I'm going to bang on about this. You know, we have got to change the narrative. Remember, I'm sick and tired of people saying this is too hard, especially it was too hard. Welding machines for all, all of these things have been too hard. 
we don't have time anymore to, to, to go. It's, it's too bad. We have to do something about it. So talk, talk, engage, and actually look at organizational stuff. Do the little, do the bits on, not little, but do the bits on individual level, but hit at organization. Great. What's the message you would give to your younger self? Well, drink less. Yeah, I think, I think that my younger self would have, would have, was, you know, seeking down a, a, a certain direction in my career and everything else. And in the end, I fell in love with an area that just makes my, makes me tick. I get up in the morning and I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic I get up in the morning and I get really down when I see negative betrayals because you've got to have a passion for this area. Sometimes you, you do something and you end up finding something else. And, you know, for me in mental health and in any health and well-being, I found a vocation and it's some, but I, with that comes passion and with that comes frustration <laughs> as well. So, so you found that. So just going back to other than drinking, what message might you give your younger self? Is to, is to take care take, take each opportunity you get and see where it takes you. I would never expect it to have spent 24 years doing this, but I have, and that's only because the opportunity came out. And I didn't, I, mean, I didn't really drink as much from a younger day. So yeah, it's, it's important to to realize that, you know, that when, when something's there and you believe in it, it's a passion, embrace it, run with it. I, I, I still get stuffed into data like, whoa, look at that's a report. Yes, it's cool. Oh, look at that. And let your mind just be creative. And that's why me, my job is to tell, is to tell a story. You know, I can't tell a story of impact if I do it from, and, uh, the GSM four says this and the ICT team that if these are the classification criteria for mental health, it's more about, do you know what? This is the guy, the person that you, you fed, who's, who you're out with and the group of people, and they're the one that's sat in the corner. They're really struggling. Give it a connection, make people think, oh yeah. And the pandemic's done that. We all had, most of us had a similar experience. We said like, oh my God. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I love that. Give it connection. Thanks so much for your, for your time today. Thank you. I would, if, I will phone Peter later actually, and just say, um, that was a history lesson going all the way back to the last pandemic. Yeah. 1918, uh, through the 1970s, the 1990s, the 20s, the 2010s up to now. We're in the, the biggest unprepared change in the last 100 years. It's quite a story. And the perspective that Peter gives there, I think, is really, really interesting. And, um, you know, to put the heart, to, to have a philosophy of putting the heart back into health and safety. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to be and a wonderful way to think about it. So thank you very much, Peter. And I will give him a call. We have 
Coming up, um, dates for your diary. Next month on the Wellbeing Hour, we have Jane Wheeler. Jane is a, a lawyer. She is our legal expert, actually. And um, she's a specialist in HR law with a particular interest in mental health. And she's talking about performance in mental health and being on the right side of the law. We also uh, have some dates for your diary. We have a face-to-face -face event coming up. Um, and talking about the law, it's at Prosecution College in Glasgow, and it is on the 10th of October. We have the Wellbeing Hour with Jane that I mentioned. On the 17th of November, we have the Wellbeing Hour with Sanita Wazir. Sanita is the global wellbeing manager for Unilever, so working on a global scale there it promises to be a good one. And we also have another face-to-face -face event. Uh, the venue to be confirmed, it's on the 1st of December, and it is a head torch aware taster event for line managers. So if you want to get involved in that, uh, drop us a note and we will get you on the list. It is very limited seats for that. Um, so that is it from us. Uh, if you like what we do, please get in touch and uh, follow us on LinkedIn, do all those things. And we will be delighted to have a conversation with you about anything. So uh, thank you all very much for attending and it was great to see everybody here. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Enjoy the, the rest of your days. Day. Thanks for listening to the Wellbeing Hour. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. These events take place regularly, so do join us for more. And if your organisation would like to develop a mentally healthy culture, we'd be happy to work with your senior team, people managers and frontline staff please get in touch at headtorch.org. We look forward to hearing from you.